Well, for those visiting today, I also am not Pastor Kaiser, but I am glad to be here with you and share with you some of the things that I've found in the Word, especially over the last months, as we've had some testing on uh, how do you have joy when things are not going quite the way you would uh, have planned out if you were in charge. And I found it harder uh, at times to have joy than I expected. So I trust that those failures and difficulties and, and even grumpiness uh, with my family will bear uh, fruit in the application of the Word of God so that we see not only the greatness of God's grace, but examples of, his, uh, of my failures and, and need to work on that. Galatians 5 says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And against such, there's no law. You can go and do those all you want. But those who are Christ have crucified the flesh, which obviously is resisting those things with its passion and desire. And if you have not been here when I have the privilege of filling in for Pastor Kaiser, it's my uh, hope that we could continue together to consider the fruit of the Spirit, how a person who is united to Jesus grows in grace and how the Spirit works in them to produce these things in ever-increasing measure. And today we look at joy, the second part of that fruit. Bruce Larson uh, wrote a commentary on the book of Luke and in that, he has an illustration that he tells about. It, it was from a conference in a Presbyterian church here in Omaha. I assume after you hear the illustration, uh, you will assure me that it was not Dominion. But they were at church at this conference, and the speaker gave each person, as they came in the back door, a helium-filled balloon. And was that Dominion? Yeah. <laughs> And the, uh, the speaker said, during the service, when you feel like expressing the joy in your heart, I want you to let go of your balloon and we'll all see them float up to the ceiling. It'll be a beautiful thing. And Larson puts in parentheses there, since these were Presbyterians, they were not free to say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. So they were given these balloons and, and during the service, various balloons ascended. But when it was over, Larson writes, one-third of the balloons were still held tightly. <laughs> now, obviously, that's not the method we want to use for expressing our joy. But isn't Larson's point true? That we do lack joy. Many Christians lack joy. And I want us to think about that as we look together at John 16 this morning, a passage on joy. And uh, this is a topical sermon. It's we're going to look at the text, but we're also trying to get a biblical view of the whole topic of joy. So we're going to bounce around at a few other texts and try to pull some things together and see if we can come to an understanding. Would you stand, please, to honor God's Word? And I want to read for us John 16, verses 16 to 24. Jesus said, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, in a little while, and you will see me. Because I go to the Father. It's good to know that we're not the only ones to get confused by some of the things that Jesus says. The disciples said among themselves, what is this he is saying to us? A little while and you're not seeing me again, a little while and you will see me and because I'm going to the Father. And they said, therefore, 
What is this that he says a little while? We, we do not know what he is saying. But Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. And so he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you will, see, will not see me? And again in a little while and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow. Can we get an amen because of that? (laughs) Because her hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Oh, great and joyous God, you who rejoice over your people with singing, we ask, as Jesus commanded, we ask that you would rejoice over us now by giving us understanding of the Word, that we might be both full of the Spirit and full of the joy that is a fruit of union with Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, by the will of the Father, to the glory of our great triune God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There were handouts on the back table. If you did not get one, you're welcome to go back there and get one, as well as purple handouts uh, for the children, if the kids would like to follow along uh, with some children's notes to kind of help them uh, stay focused on the topic and, and recognize when we're making those transitions and make sure they're getting as much from it as possible. Well, for those of you who've read John Piper, you know his quotation from C.S. Lewis. For those of you who've heard him, you've probably heard him say it. He says it often. It's in almost every book. But here is what C.S. Lewis said. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So we have that comment, and yet at the same time we all know, and I'm sure it's happened to you, maybe it's true in your life this very morning, That many Christians are, if we were to continue to borrow from Larson's illustration, they're still holding on to their balloons. (laughs) Between your job and your spouse, 
between your guilt and your sins, many believers honestly have little or no joy. And the promises of joy made by God in the Bible, combined with exhortations from the pastor as well as from well-meaning friends, seem only to highlight a lack of happiness, which sometimes controls our lives, doesn't it? From where does true joy come? And what shall we do if it eludes us? Now, Galatians 5 is clear. You cannot get anything from the text other than this. In order to have biblical joy, there must be a mortification of the flesh. And so Flannery O'Connor was correct when she said, in self-denial, you must always renounce a lesser good for a greater good, the opposite of which is sin. So I want you to picture me with my ground teeth stalking joy, fully armed too, as it's a highly dangerous sport. <laughs> Flannery O'Connor was a southern novelist in the earlier night. <laughs> oh, me. I should have known that was coming and totally blindsided by it. I just never... <laughs> How shall we stalk joy? Well, the first thing we must do is we must embrace a biblical definition of joy. Look again at verse 22 of John 16. Jesus says, Now you have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. That word joy and kind of its related words, rejoice and rejoicing and joyful, all of those cognates occur over 400 times in the Bible. In addition to that, there are words that are not directly related to joy, such as happiness and gladness and um, delight and all of their cognates. So clearly, joy is a common idea in the Scriptures. No wonder C.S. Lewis, in writing a letter to one of his friends, said this, it is a Christian duty, as you know, for every one of us to be as happy as he can. It is a Christian duty for every one of us to be as happy as he can. And so, let's say this as a beginning point. If your religion knows no place for jump up and down joy, now I want to say this respectfully, courteously, because we are in a Presbyterian church. But if your religion has no place at all for a jump up and down joy over God and what He has done, then I would like to submit to you that maybe your religion is not the same as biblical Christianity. Now, some people object to that. They say, no, no, no. You cannot define the essence of Christianity in terms of joy because duty is the big word. And and yes, Absolutely, duty is essential to religion. Boy, if you have not figured it out yet, you need to know there are times for a grinded out obedience to God when the world around you and the sinful desires within you are just combined to make every step of holiness nothing but misery. And there are times like that. And you just have to grind it out. So duty is important. Others object. They say, no, you cannot centralize the faith around joy in any way because, well, because there's just too much suffering in this world. 
Too much suffering to make joy a centerpiece of our religion. I, I pastored a church one time and we were going through a series on mortification of the flesh. And one of the women came to me and we had a church motto, a little one sentence motto that kind of summarized what the church was about. And she, she suggested we change the motto. She wanted it to be blank, blank church and you know, put the name of the church and then say, we hate it too. Now, she, <laughs> she was trying to make a joke. But what she was saying was that as God is... Um, Amy Grant used to sing in one of her songs about being like a grape that God is just squishing. And yes, it's a good thing. You get wine out of it, but man, it hurts, doesn't it? And so there's, there's suffering in the world. And, and God was loving on us in that church in such a way that it pained the flesh and produced anything it seemed other than, than joy. And yet, I would say, even in the face of both of those objections, which, ha- which have some truth to them, I'm not saying that... That, that the Christian life is ever-ascending raptures of joy where you never grieve or sorrow, even though those have truth. Let me insist to you that the Bible says that to know God is joy. Listen to Jesus in John 15. These things I have spoken to you for a reason. Because I want my joy to be inside of you and I want your joy to be complete. Now that sounds to me like a a man who is passionately concerned that we be full of joy. How do we get this joy? Jesus says He wants His joy to be in us and our joy to be complete. How do we get the completeness or fullness of joy? Well, the Bible's already told us in Psalm 1611. In your presence is the fullness of joy. And... At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, the Bible tells us two things about God. It tells us first that He is the source of joy. Joy comes from Him. We sang Psalm 51. And in that psalm that we sang, we asked God, we said, God, will you not give me the joy of your salvation? Why do we ask for joy from God? Because He's the source of it. It comes from Him. He's not simply the source, though. The Bible also tells us that God is the object of our joy. We get joy from Him, but we also find He's the object of the joy so that my soul rejoices in the Lord. He he gives us the joy, and our joy comes as we focus on Him. Listen, here's something that's made. Right worship, correct worship, biblical worship, is called in the Bible... The sacrifice of joy. (laughs) Isn't that an amazing thing? The sacrifice of joy. You don't have to come here with a goat or an ox that you come and you slice its head off and pour the blood all over the floor. Your sacrifice, the offering you present to God is joy. (laughs) Isn't that an amazing thing? That's how you know if your worship is Pleasing God, is it your joy to be here? Why is it that way? Because God Himself is full of joy. He rejoices over His people. Isn't it amazing that Zephaniah says that God sings over you? And as we looked at last week, Luke 12, Fear not, little children. God delights to give you the kingdom. He just loves His people. Just like you love your children. Right? Don't you love your kids? Isn't it a joy for you to be around them and see them? Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. 
Jesus was so committed to feasting (laughs) that he was derided while he was here as a glutton and a drunkard. He commands us, Matthew 5, rejoice and be glad. I think Paul understood that because if you look at Paul's writings, you find that when he wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, I want you to rejoice always. When he wrote to the believers in Philippi, he said, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. When he wrote to the Christians in Rome, he prayed this, May the God of all hope fill you with joy in believing. And when he wrote to the Corinthians this, Finally, brothers, here it is. Here's the summary sentence of Paul to the Corinthians. Rejoice. (laughs) Isn't it amazing? Whenever that man took up a pen... Like a doctor writing a prescription, Paul's prescription was joy. So that's why I say that I think the Bible teaches that biblical Christianity expects from us a jump up and down joy. That's not the whole picture though, is it? It's not all the Bible says about joy. What are some of the other truths that we must understand about joy and some of their implications? Well, first, you need to know that biblical joy does not eliminate sorrow, does it? Biblical joy does not eliminate sorrow. The same Bible which insists that we be full of joy is very realistic about the sadness and suffering in this life. Jesus illustrates it in our text with a woman in labor. Now, obviously, I have no personal experience having never given birth. But I was there... That's kind of the new thing, you know. Fifty years ago, if I'd been a Puritan preaching, none of the guys would have ever been there. How many of you guys were in, a, in the delivery room at one time or another when, when one of the babies was born? So a lot, a, lot of, a lot of the guys. I bet you can agree with me that Genesis 3.16 is still in effect. In pain you shall bring forth children. Even though you weren't doing it, you could see it in your wife's face. And I would agree, labor is great sorrow. But even... With that great sorrow, it was exactly true. After the birth, the pain did not go away. But when the doctor took that little baby and wiped off the goo, you know, because I don't know that your wife would want it right as exactly looked, but wiped off the stuff and then handed it to her for a season at least, the happiness, the joy totally overwhelmed the sorrow. The joy of having her baby kind of buoyed her up out of the deluge of pain. Isn't that exactly what Jesus says? A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a person has been born into the world. Now, clearly from this text, Jesus gives that illustration and then says, now let's apply this to the rest of your lives. He even says, therefore you are the exact same way you're going to have sorrow. But I'm going to come back again and then your heart will rejoice. And that joy, no one will take from you. Now, I want to, um, since most of the kids don't understand this illustration, let me give you an illustration maybe that will help the kids kind of relate to it uh, as I thought about this. So hopefully this will help. Let's, um, well, for your children, most of the time on your birthday, you get... Something. What do you get? You get presents, don't you? You get presents. You get birthday presents, right? Now, some of those presents produce joy in their own right. 
Sometimes when the nine or ten year old boy opens up the present, it's a you know lightsaber, or it's a computer game, or for the girl it's um, you know, an American. What are those things called? Uh, Barbie doll. I wasn't going to say Barbie doll. I was carefully avoiding that. Thank you. <laughs> those American something dolls. Um, American girl dolls. Thank you. Whatever it is, the the present in and of itself produces waves of joy. Sometimes kids, especially when they're young, they even squeal with delight. But other times, the kids may receive a present that in and of itself does not produce those overwhelming feelings of joy, right? I remember the time when my kids got, and this is a great present, but it was a U.S. savings bond. Now, when you open up a U.S. savings, it's a great present. But when you open up a U.S. savings bond, it doesn't have that immediate, yeah, that satisfaction. It just doesn't goo you. It's like, uh, you know, it's like the difference between John opening up a thing and it's a brand new DeWalt, uh, you know, drill with 15 tons of battery chargers and all that stuff that goes with it versus woolen underwear, you know. I mean, it's just, both are needed, right? But there's something about some gifts that have the joy in themselves. So we had to teach our kids, when they first felt that flush of disappointment, how do you respond? And here's what we try to teach our kids. You have to look past the gift to have your joy that someone loves you enough to give you a gift at all. See, you, you can't just say, this gift does not make me happy, therefore I don't want it, I'm not going to be happy. But you have to look beyond the gift and say, I have a grandparent who loves me, so much that he would go out and buy for me a gift. Well, listen, the Bible tells you the exact same thing, kids. It tells you that you can have joy in the midst of sorrow and suffering. How? Because you know that there is a Father in heaven. The Bible tells you He gives you always good gifts. He loves you so much that He always give you good gifts. Let me show you some Christians who did just this. Turn to 2 Corinthians 8, please. 2 Corinthians 8. This is an amazing uh, passage, I think. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and 2. Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians to not build their lives just upon opening the present and liking the gift and that makes them happy but of trusting the Father to give good gifts. So he gives the example of this church in Macedonia, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. And here's the grace they had. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of of their liberality. Do you see it there? Joy abounding right in the midst of a trial. Jesus teaches the exact same joy can be yours. Turn to Matthew 5. Just like it was true for the Macedonians, just like Paul tried to teach the Corinthians how to do this, Jesus says the exact same thing in Matthew 5, verses 11 to 12. I think it is, yeah. Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Blessed are you, Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why? For great 
is your reward in heaven. Now, now what we're starting to do now is kind of fill out a biblical description of this joy. We see, first of all, that this word joy is just all over the Bible. So somehow our understanding of true faith must include the idea of joy. And then we kind of massage it a little bit. We look at some other texts and we see that, well, there's this joy, but it does not eliminate all sorrow, does it? It doesn't mean I'm never going to be sad again. There's a lot of sadness, too. So that's, we're starting to fill out the picture. Let's look at a third thing. Biblical joy is supernatural. It is supernatural. Now, this should be clear to you from Galatians 5 because it says the fruit of the Spirit is joy. What are some implications of this truth? Well, first, you need to know that biblical joy cannot be manufactured. You must depend upon your union with Christ to give you biblical joy. It's not something you stir up within yourself, but it's something you appeal to Christ for. Then second, biblical joy is not natural. Now that's going to be real important because the counterfeit of joy is that natural feeling that comes up when you open the present and it's a DeWall drill, right? When it's exactly what you want, you get all these feelings of joy and there's nothing wrong with that. We rejoice in good gifts. But that's not biblical joy. So we, if it's supernatural, then it's not natural. And that means the supernatural part in Galatians 5 specifically connects crucifying the flesh with having this joy, right? There, there's somehow those have to go together. Somehow I must deny a natural response in myself in order to have this biblical fruit. Then third, biblical joy requires faith. You're going to have to believe the promises and receive all that God is for you in Jesus Christ to have biblical joy. Then fourth, we're going to cover this in detail in a second, but biblical joy must be prayed for, it must be sought after, and it must be stirred up. It's not just opening and getting what you want, but it's when, uh, not just when those feelings well up because I got what I wanted, but it's when you go beyond that, it's something outside of you that you seek. So, so here, we're starting to fill it out again. Biblical Christianity in some way must involve a jump up and down joy. Biblical joy coexists with sorrow and biblical joy is supernatural. Let me add a third description of this jump up and down joy. Biblical joy is more than feelings, isn't it? It's more than feelings. See, I I think one of the reasons some of us lack joy is we are waiting for the feeling to hit us. We're waiting for God to give us exactly what we want so that those feelings are stirred up and we say, oh yeah, I have that feeling inside of me. And yet, you need to know this. Biblical joy does not come from there first and foremost because if it did, you could not have joy in the midst of affliction. But that's specifically what the text said. The Macedonian Christians had joy right in the midst of of affliction. So get this, biblical joy comes not from delightful circumstances, but from knowing that the God who controls your circumstances is delightful. That's a big difference. Biblical joy comes not from delightful circumstances, but from knowing that the God who controls your circumstances is delightful. Rejoice, said Jesus, and be exceedingly glad. 
not because you are persecuted, but even in the midst of persecution. Why? Because your God is preparing a reward for you in heaven. Your God is... Jesus has gone before you to prepare the mansion for you. And God is so in charge of your circumstances. This is, to me, the hardest step. But to say this, God is bringing, isn't He? He's bringing that difficulty into my life. Why? Because He wants me to understand how to have joy in the midst of suffering so that I can demonstrate my faith in a reward so great that the sufferings don't matter. Let me say that again. God brings those sufferings in your life so you can have joy in the midst of suffering and so demonstrate that, there is a, that you believe, that you have faith in a God who rewards His people so greatly that the sufferings will become inconsequential in comparison. Paul says that exact thing in Romans 8. He says this, I consider that the sufferings of my present life are not worthy of comparing to the glory that will, will, will be revealed. The Macedonian Christians, in the, in the great trial of affliction, the abundance of joy abounded. James 1-2, count it all joy when you face all these trials. Trials of various kinds. Why? Because this produces perseverance in us and steadfastness. That's why the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, which is kind of a standard Bible encyclopedia, I guess. <laughs> kind of summed right up there in the title, isn't it? It is. It's kind of the main encyclopedia people use who are uh, studying the Scriptures. It's written by Bible-believing scholars. But they come up with this definition. Christian joy is no mere gaiety that knows no gloom, but is instead the result of the triumph of faith over adverse and trying circumstances, which instead of hindering joy, actually enhances it. Even our Lord, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Imagine, if you will, being shipwrecked out in the Atlantic Ocean. And the only thing that prevents you from drowning is a life preserver that, that buoys you up slightly out of the water. Now, it's better to be in the ocean with a life preserver than to be in the ocean without one, isn't it? <laughs> I think it is. I would much rather be in the ocean with a life preserver than without one. But you know what? It's still not quite the same as being on land. <laughs> now, have any of you ever been in the ocean and thought you were going to drown? Anybody? Just Daniel and me. We got. Uh, we were out at, at uh, in Gulf Shores, Alabama, and and uh, the, the Gulf doesn't have very big waves. So when these big hurricanes come in, that's it's very tempting to go out there. Oh wow, we get big waves. Well, we were out there in too bad a storm, and all of a sudden, whoa, we were swept out. And I, I thought we were dead. I, I really did. Um, it, it's a terrifying. So being, I can assure you, those of you who don't have experience, since that's most of you, I would much rather have. A life preserver than not. But I really like the land thing. That was, <laughs> that's my favorite part. <laughs> I think that's a good parable for joy in the Christian life. The problem is that we live outside the Garden of Eden, don't we? 
Isn't it interesting that in Revelation, God says this about heaven. He says, you know, in heaven there's no more sea. (laughs) We're kind of in the sea right now. We're in a sea of sorrow, a sea of suffering. And because of the evil of the world outside the Garden of Eden, it's a little like being shipwrecked and out in the ocean. And the promise of the Scriptures is that you as a Christian... If you have made your commitment to Christ, if your faith is in Him, you have the Holy Spirit booing, buoying you out of the water. And that lifts you out of despair, the despair that's experienced by those without hope. Now, all of that said, we remember that the Christian still suffers from the storms in life, doesn't she? Just because you have a life preserver does not mean that when the waves come, they don't smash over your head and you don't get salt water in your mouth. It may be the death of a spouse. It may be the news of cancer. It may be the pink slip. Whatever it is, it raises those ocean waves higher than your head and they crush you. And some people, when those waves are hitting you, you may be tempted to this. You may be tempted to say, you know, I just don't want this life preserver. This thing doesn't work. I wanted a life preserver that would make all the storms go away. You know what a lot of people think when they become Christians? I'm going to make this commitment to God. I'm going to do this Jesus thing. And then the rest of my life is easy, right? And, and, and then storms come, right? And difficulties come. And problems. And you say, this life preserver does not work. (laughs) But a life preserver doesn't calm the storms, does it? A life preserver does not even guarantee you that you will never get salt water in your mouth again, does it? A life preserver, only thing it does is it buoys you up so that even after, right, after the wave comes, (coughs) you're choking from the salt water, you still have something that lifts your head back up above the wave. And you know what? This one other thing. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when the waves come, you begin to like that life preserver even more than you did at first? If you really realize that the alternative to the life preserver is to not have one and to be drowned, then you begin to say, you know, this is a... Wonderful life preserver. I'm really keen on this life preserver thing. I'm not to dry land, but I'm awfully glad that I have a life preserver. And then you find out, the Bible tells us that it's not just that you have a life preserver, but there's a rope tied to it. And there's someone who is strong holding the other end. And God, though, yes, you're not on land yet, He's on land and He's pulling you in. And that life preserver is the joy which keeps us buoyed, not always delivered from the waves, but buoyed up so that even though the waves come, we are sustained. With those three biblical ideas about the joy which belongs to those who know Christ, I would offer this definition for you. Biblical joy is the fruit of union with Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, which is received by faith and which buoys 
the believer with hope and happiness, even in the midst of a sea of suffering. Biblical joy is this. It is the fruit of union with Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, which is received by faith and which buoys the believer with hope and happiness, even in the midst of the sea of suffering. Now, if you want that kind of joy, how do you get it? Let me walk you through some other things you have to do in order to get that kind of joy in your life. And the first thing we must do is we must deny, we must deny ourselves the opposite of joy. You have to deny yourselves the opposite of joy. This is the crucifixion of the flesh that Galatians 5 speaks of. Now, you might guess, I think most people would guess, if, if, I, if I asked what is the opposite of joy, our first response would be sadness. But I don't think that's strictly accurate. Because biblical joy coexists with sadness, doesn't it? I think if you study all of the passages about joy, the opposite of biblical joy is despair. It's when you give up hope. It's when you let go of the life preserver. Not the seas of sadness coming over you, but when you let go of the life preserver and say, I just, I just don't want to try anymore. I don't want to have God's joy because what I wanted was happy circumstance. I want to dry land. I'm not interested in a life preserver. You throw it away. It's despair. And that's why I think Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he's talking about what happens when a fellow Christian dies. When your loved ones die. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Do not grieve like the rest of people do who have no hope. Do not grieve like they do. Now, you have to grieve. A Christian grieves if it does not break your heart to see the, the, the anguish of sin and, and the miseries of life here on this earth. Even Jesus grieved, wept at a funeral. It should cause us to grieve. We are commanded by God to grieve with those who grieve. And of course, we grieve ourselves, but we don't grieve like other people who have no hope. So there is a grieving that at the same time has hope because Christian grief is buoyed up out of the ocean of despair because the Christian knows the God who is keeping his life safe forever. I think that's exactly how Psalms 42 and 43 teach us to preach the gospel to ourselves. In Psalm 42 and 43, you have a guy who is on the depths of, uh, on the uh, precipice of despair. He is, he is considering, I don't know if he was considering suicide, but he certainly is, is at the point of despair. And then three times in those two Psalms, the psalmist says, he says this, My soul why are you so disquieted within me? Put your hope in God, for He will yet save you, my God and my salvation. Why are you cast down on my soul? I preach the gospel to myself. I, I bring my soul a life preserver. I tell myself the truth about the God who gives life preservers and holds the rope and it lifts me out of despair. Friends, despair is an alluring temptation, is it not? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about how powerful a temptation despair is? Doesn't it just feed the flesh? It allows you to feel sorry for yourself. It allows you to imagine all of your problems are somebody else's fault. Woe is me. 
how terrible it is for me. It allows you to say, you know, I haven't really been treated fairly. Everybody else can have joy, but I'm going to have despair. And it allows us to complain because we haven't been treated the way we ought to be treated. Despair is an alluring temptation of the flesh, and yet it must be resisted because it is the work of the flesh. It's the mortification, the crucifixion. It's the flesh that is fighting against the Spirit in Galatians 5 because the flesh does not like the Gospel in Psalms 42 and 43. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. And the flesh is saying, No, I want to trust myself. (laughs) That's why Jeremiah 17... I can't go there. Third, we (laughs) we must be cautious of the counterfeit of joy. If biblical joy buoys the believer up with hope and happiness, even in the midst of the sea of suffering, then what is the counterfeit of, of joy? The counterfeit of biblical joy is this. It's when the seas are smooth, right? When, when, there's no, when there's no difficulty around, it feels like you are, you feel happy, right? When your spouse is serving you unselfishly, when your children are obeying your thoughts before you utter them, when the paper boy throws the paper and it lands on the doorstep, when your boss gives you both an attaboy and a pay raise, yeah, I'm happy, I'm full of joy, <laughs> Now, there's nothing wrong with good gifts, right? There's nothing wrong with those things. We, we thank the Father for those. But what about when your spouse is demanding? When he lacks understanding? When she insists that all of the problems in the marriage are your fault? What about when your kids refuse to obey when you've told them 50 times to do something? What about... When your paper boy throws it and it lands in the mud? What about when your boss fires you? What about when your friends are mean and the only presents you get on your birthday are woolen underwear? What about when the storms come? What about when the sea is billowing? See, that's when the counterfeit is exposed, isn't it? If your only joy is the joy that comes from smooth seas, then the storms come and... You drown, <laughs> right? It's not a big deal to, to stay afloat when the sea is calm. The real challenge is to stay afloat, right, when there are waves. So is your joy a counterfeit joy or is it the true thing? Is it, or let's say it this way. A lot of people don't want the real joy. So what they do is they, they spend all of their lives trying to make calm seas. Right? Hey, I'm going to earn some more money so I can get better health insurance, so I can always pay for the doctor bills, so I, if me or my family is ever sick, I can always take care of it. I can, I can always organize my life so it's smooth. I, I, I avoid suffering at all costs. I, my idol in the heart that uh, Rodney spoke to us about earlier is comfort. It's Calm seas. Now the problem is that no matter how we try, sometimes what? God's out there with His hand just bouncing that water around, right? Because suffering comes in life. I don't know if you've tried. I've tried. I've tried to just have comfort. And, and God is persistent in disturbing the sea. So the question is this. What are you going to do when the seas are rough? 
And for me, what I want to do is I want help from God learning how to grab onto the life preserver of joy. How do we do that? Well, we must actively cultivate true joy. And let's walk through the rap bat thing again. Probably not the best alliteration, but it's all we have. Rap bat. First, R, read of the biblical promises of joy. You do know, don't you, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When you are in times of despair, when you know that God is saying to you, you need to learn what true joy is. Read of His promises. Read of the God who in Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with singing. Get your concordance out and look up all 400 verses of joy and read the Bible because it is life. Read of the promises of joy. Then second, admit that you cannot have joy apart from Christ. John 15 says, if you do not abide in me, then you cannot bear fruit. (laughs) But the fruit of the Spirit is joy. So we cannot get biblical joy unless we're abiding in Christ. So confess to Him, God, I have sought for and settled after, I have sought after and settled for a counterfeit of joy. I have attempted to get a calm sea in my own strength. I have failed. I need your joy. Admit that you cannot get it apart from Him. Then third, pray to the God of joy. In God's presence is the fullness of joy. Therefore, those who would stalk joy passionately must pursue the presence of God. When you are tempted to despair, pray. When you are overwhelmed by the storms, pray. Ask, says Jesus in John 16 in our text that we began with. John 16, whatever it was, 24. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Then fourth, be, uh, the B, believe that those who know Christ can do His will. Look in your Bible, if, you if you want to look, your Bible, John 15, 10. In John 15.10, Jesus is again talking about joy. He just loves this subject. And in John 15.10 and 11, interestingly enough, He connects obedience with joy. If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. So these things I have spoken to you, so that My... Will you believe Jesus when He says you can do this? You can obey the Father. Believe these promises. Believe the promise of joy can be ours. And then fifth, act in faith, taking up the cross of joy. Hopefully you see why I chose the hymn both before and after the sermon that I did where it speaks of the the joy which chases me through pain and the cross which we will not run from. Charles Ross, who was also a pastor in the late 1800s, said this, The tears which you shed are themselves the seed which brings the harvest of joy. It seems so opposite that, doesn't it? How could I shed tears, of, how could I shed tears and those be the seeds of joy? And as crazy as it sounds to our flesh, God has made it that way. 
so that the flesh will have to die because here's the truth that the Bible teaches. You cannot both avoid suffering and experience biblical joy in this life. You just can't do it. You cannot avoid suffering and experience biblical joy in this life. You've already seen it from Matthew 5. Let me give you some other passages just to press this truth on you. Listen to 1 Peter 4, 12-13. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. So you're getting ready to go through a terrible trial. Don't think that's strange. Instead, what do, you do? What do we do, Peter? Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Isn't that a strange thing? So that when His glory is revealed, you may, be also, may also be glad with exceeding joy. Rejoice to the extent that you take part in Christ's suffering. In Romans 5.3, Paul says, We also rejoice in our sufferings. In Acts 5, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Why? Because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with great joy given by the Holy Spirit. See how God connects taking up the cross of suffering for Christ and the joy of the Holy Spirit. 1 Timothy 1.8 Join with me in suffering for the Gospel. Do you want joy? Know this. Joy eludes us while we avoid suffering for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Joy eludes us while we avoid suffering for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then sixth, thank God for the joy given and for the joy withheld. Thank God for the joy given and for the joy withheld. You know this, but God does not give every person the same amount of joy, does He? Some people have a life preserver which seems to work so well, they're not down in the waves. They're walking on water. right? Their joy is just, whoop, they're just floating on along. And others of us, more melancholy people, you're down here and you have the life preserver on, but you have to turn your head up just to occasionally get some breath of air. God doesn't give every person the same amount of joy. And so while we are constantly working to increase our joy, those of us, those who are more prone to a sadder, melancholy, depressed spirit, be thankful. God knows what is best, doesn't He? He knows what is best for you. Be thankful for the joy given and the joy withheld. John Piper uh, has written many books on joy. That's kind of one of his big themes. And uh, obviously in one little sermon, I can't do justice to the whole of the topic, but my hope today is that you will have been encouraged to consider the reality that Christianity includes a call to joy and you will be motivated to not only seek joy, but to seek it biblically and to study it on your own. Let me conclude with this quote from Blaise Pascal. Uh, Pascal is a famous mathematician. Pascal, computer language, named after him. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. 
because of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both. Attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Pascal was noting a truth that is written large across your Bibles. All of us seek joy. So the question is, will you seek joy through a biblical and God-honoring means or will you reject that joy because it does not provide what you want, which is dry land, and will you, in your refusal to do that, say, I'm going to try and make an area of calm in the midst of this ocean? I would suggest that's the choice before us this morning. But I would remind you that your souls long for a joy that is outside of yourself. For those who would not like God's form of joy, many have tried to pursue it in their own power, making those calm places, but their souls wither up and dry. God has made you so the only joy which will delight you is the joy that He provides in the midst of the waves of the sea. Father God, You who is the source and object of all joy, we bow before You this morning acknowledging that Your joy is not ours, acknowledging that You are a joyous God, a delightful God, that in You is the fullness of joy and in Your presence is pleasure forevermore. And how far, Lord, we have fallen from the joy of Your presence. I ask, Lord, for us for Your people, that You would restore unto us the joy of Your salvation, that You would give us the courage to believe these glorious promises in the Word and to not run away from the cross, but to accept the joy that You provide in the face of trials and afflictions. Lord, may it be true of us as it was true of the Macedonians, that out of the great trials they faced, the abundance of joy abounded and welled up and overflowed into their lives. And may it be for us, Lord, a testimony to others, even as it was in the Macedonians for those in Corinth. Do that for us, Lord, that Your name might be glorified and that we, Your people, might rejoice in Your goodness to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.